Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Kyle Hanfield. He's the managing director at Ventrify. Kyle, welcome to the show. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. It's nice to see a fellow Canadian working in, in an innovative space. But maybe before we get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, um, so born and raised uh, actually in Edmonton, Alberta, here in Canada. Sure. Um, yeah, my family's been in uh, Canada since 1847, actually. Really? Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I couldn't yeah. tell you how long. Well, I guess I could figure that out, but that doesn't matter. Interesting. So <laughs> you, you went to um, the University of Alberta here. What did you take and why? Yeah, I guess I'll just jump back and bring you a little bit through uh, my life here. So sure. uh, I ended up, I I went into uh, mechanical engineering right out of high school and uh, I didn't uh, didn't exactly know, you know, where I was going. I pursu- pursued a few other paths. I actually uh, used to compete in uh, culinary competitions. So I was actually looking at being a chef back then. Okay. Um, but I ended up going into engineering, uh, mechanical engineering, just because uh, you know, I'd always been fairly interested in um, designing things. I would call myself more of a of an inventor by passion. You know, I always kind of got ideas coming up. Um, so I ended up in uh, mechanical engineering, and I worked through a few different industries from the road construction, chemical uh, chemical plants, um, and then I actually ended up over in the uh, product design design industry. Okay, so how did you make that transition? Yeah. Um, so I, through school, I did co-op terms at uh, a number of different companies, and they were they were all right. Um, but my my biggest strife with them was just uh, you know you you're expected to you know spec a heat exchanger, and okay. uh, what do you get? You get a heat exchanger. Um, so I didn't <laughs> Shocking, really right? like the traditional. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't really like the traditional engineering work. Okay. Um, so I, I applied all around the world and I ended up getting a job offer, um, in Taiwan. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I, I applied for companies all around the world, uh, Dyson, um, to be a few that you actually have uh, heard of. Sure. And then once I got this offer in Taiwan, I, uh, about two months, two months later, I packed my bags, got on a flight and, uh, showed up in Taiwan. I had about a month before I was starting work and I had to figure out, uh, where to live, how to speak the language uh, when I arrived. Interesting. And you'd never been to Taiwan before, correct? I honestly didn't even know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, like I, I looked at it up, it up on the map. And why I chose to go there, I interviewed for a few other companies, uh, one in the UK, um, okay. was because there's, I mean, I was Edmonton born and raised. I was looking for what is the most foreign, the most different experience that I could, that I could actually see and sure. um what gave me the most opportunity to do something that was the most challenging and the most unknown to a lot of people over here sure. so um the company i worked for over there they design electronic products um but then they actually um deal with directly with the manufacturers in china okay so that's that's how i got introduced into you know the china manufacturing china industry and uh i think that's that was the big lure to going over to china was you know i know mandarin was a huge language for business and sure. it's you know you always hear about you know china being this place where everything's built and um a lot of cool opportunities but nobody really knows you know what goes on behind the curtain sure interesting so walk me through that first month in Taiwan before you started your new job. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so first I left Edmonton. It was uh, the, a couple of days before New Year's and okay. uh, it was negative 30 degrees out. 
um, <laughs> got on the plane. And when I got off the plane in Taiwan, 17 hours later, it was plus 34 degrees sure. um, Celsius. So it was, it was, you know, smoking hot. I still had on my sweater and I had my hundred pounds of luggage. And I basically, <laughs> sure. when I got there, I went on uh, Facebook and I started looking up, you know, apartments, like, where do I live? Okay. Um, sure. And I, I ended up settling up on a hostel and, uh, the thing about Taiwan is they have a very vast uh, network of trains and uh, and what they call the MRT. Okay. And uh, I got lost in this underground mall. So I had to walk up like seven flights of stairs, but uh, ended up finding my hostel and uh, set up a few a few places to uh, check out for apartments. Okay. Um, and from there, it went pretty good. The biggest, the hardest challenge was uh, not knowing the language. Sure. So... Uh, my base example is uh, when I first moved to China, I know I knew three words. I knew ni hao, which means hello, and ni uh, romian, which is uh, beef noodle. Okay. Um, so the, the first month, I ate beef noodle for an entire month. Um, <laughs> just because you look at the menu, you got a bunch of Chinese characters, and I'm like, I don't know what's what's what. Um, and some of the food, you know, it's it's fairly foreign for me, so it comes out, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll just order beef noodle. Um, <laughs> beef noodle, I got pretty sick of it pretty quick, and then. Uh, Actually, after you after you learn the language and infiltrate the culture a little bit, I, I think Taiwan is one of the countries in Asia that has the best culinary experience. Interesting, and hence why yeah. you wanted to be a chef, right? Originally, yeah. I mean, I I like cooking. I like eating good food more. So sure. uh, there was always that that drawn to it, and it's just similar similar to the design industry. I guess you could draw a pretty good parallel in the fact sure. that, you know, you come up with your SP, you design, you design something and, uh, it's all about, you know, the customer experience and, you know, how it tastes and how it feels in your mouth. Uh, you can compare that pretty, pretty linearly to, uh, developing a new product. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So walk me through your day to day working in a design manufacturing electronics company in, uh, Taiwan. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the way the company ran, there was a, a few project managers and uh, most of our clients were North American or European. Okay. And uh, then we had a full, a full design team. So I came on as uh, one of the project managers. Okay. Um, so I actually worked on a product, which was a, a smart dog feeder. Okay. Um, so you could Skype Fluffy, talk to Fluffy or feed Fluffy with your smartphone um, <laughs> while you're awesome. at work or on vacation. Sure. So it has a little tray in it that rotates. Okay. Um, and so the day-to-day -day was a lot of, um, you know, hopping on a call with the with the client or sending them an email at the end of the week, you know, letting them know where we're at. And a lot of the design decisions you're making with the product are going to affect the cost. It's going to, how much it's going to cost to produce and how much it's going to cost uh, in the mass production. So there's a lot of benefit cost um, analysis that goes on and a lot of actual communication with the customer you're dealing with. Um, so most of my day to day was actually just working on working with the different teams, the electronic engineering team, the mechanical engineering team, the customer, and then also the factories in China to make sure that all these pieces were uh, kind of fitting together. Interesting. So I, uh, I had a good opportunity. I got to go over to um, China about 17 times wow. um, through Hong Kong and then into Shenzhen. And I spent uh, about a month in the fact in the factory or at the factory floor, they're doing some plastic injection molding parts. Okay. Um, and the first, the first, here's the first tip um, for when you get introduced to a factory and you're looking to develop a product is uh, they play this fun game when they get a new client, um, you sign a contract with them and they want to take you out for drinks to celebrate. Okay. So you, you get to the restaurant, you order a bunch of food and you got the uh, seven or eight people all from the, all from the company that take you out for drinks. And each person fills up their cup with uh, with uh, baijiu or some other type of uh, liquor, and uh, they go around and independently cheers you, and yell gangbei, and everybody, and you take a drink. And what you what they do is you drink for each time everybody else ah, drinks once. Got you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you can always tell the experienced people by uh, they just get everybody to fill up a cup and take a drink at the same time. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, yeah, that's it's awesome. a funny little little anecdote there. Sure. So walk me through some of the things that you learned 
doing and being involved in the manufacturing process because you and I had beers last night and it, some of the stuff that you were talking about from um, just like your experiences there and actually what kind of goes on and, and how to protect your your property was really actually quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great question. There's uh, there's quite a few intricacies to designing a product that's going to be scaled into uh, mass production. Sure. Um, so one of the one of the big things that we do is we'll work with the factories early on in the start of the process, and that's for a number of reasons that I'll outline in a few examples. Um, the first is the actual cost of doing you know injection molds on plastic parts um, and bringing your plastic part you know through that design process what shape and how you design the plastic part early on is going to strongly affect the cost in which you um, incur when you do that, when you do that molding process. Okay. And that's why it's really important to deal directly with the factory that's going to be doing it. Whether you're working with a three ton injection molding machine versus a four ton machine, it's going to um, change how the part has to be designed. Okay. Um, and so a lot of communication and collaboration with the factory you're going to work with, early on in the design process is best. It's going to save you a lot of cost on the scaling because um, they'll, they'll give you feedback on your design on how to make it more um, scalable and cheaper to manufacture the mold. Interesting. Um, and then the second, the second big part is when you're designing electronic products specifically. So hardware products is what we specialize in. Sure. Um, a lot of times you'll build the prototype off of um, American branded uh, Bluetooth products or prototype chips. Okay. Um, and those are all great. You know, it's quick. You get, you can quickly move through the prototype stage and develop a workable prototype. Um, but what you end up doing is when you go to actually manufacture a product in China, you're not buying those $4 Bluetooth chips that you would buy as a prototype here. Interesting. You're going to buy the, you know, 70 cent board or 70 cent chip that you'll get from, you know, a China supplier. Got you. And the, and the, the big problem with that or the challenge with that is, this brand name Bluetooth chip that you see in America, it has, you know, a software suite to help you program your firmware onto it. It has a bunch of libraries you can use that'll simplify your code. When you go to, you know, that Chinese version, you're going to have to write the firmware in directly in like Objective-C. And uh, you'll end up doing a lot of extra rework if you didn't consider this, you know, early on in the process. Okay. And so that's a lot of what we do is, you know, help educate our clients on, you know, what can we do earlier on in the design step to avoid any rework in the future? Sure. So walk me through you moving back to Edmonton and, and starting Ventrify and what exactly is it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, the company I was working for um, overseas, you know, I saw that there's a good, a big market for uh, hardware products. Um, and then helping scale and supply products in China. But what I think the biggest thing that was lacking was a, a local a local connection. So okay. a North American company that works directly with our clients. Sure. Um, so that's that's the reason why we're setting up here in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, um, is so that we can work directly locally with our clients here. So we'll do the first uh, about like month or two of the prototypes here in Canada, where we go through and do the uh, product feasibility studies. Okay. So we'll look at, um, you know, how much it's actually going to cost to make as a unit cost in China before we actually make a lot of those design design decisions. Sure. Um, and then we'll go through a really detailed design thinking industrial design step. Okay. So that's where design thinking is looking at the problem from a user perspective. Okay. Um, and so really digging deep into um, how the user is going to use it, you know, what environments are they going to use it in um, and how to make the most user-friendly experience, how to make a product that's competitive on the market. Um, and then the latter half where we do a lot of the detailed design electronics and the plastic parts, we'll actually do that over in Taiwan. Sure. Um, utilizing some of the great talent over there. So that was the you know vision behind Ventrify. So we launched about uh, six months ago now. Okay. And what we offer is we offer complete design services from idea all the way through to mass-produced products delivered on your doorstep. Very cool. And the big the big three reasons you know we see clients working with us is um, number one is because they're trying to get to market um, with a pretty competitive timeline. So they're looking for a partner that can bring them through that scaling process. Sure. Number two is 
the only way that they can compete in the market is with a, you know, um, outsourced manufacturing solution. But, uh, you know, they don't know all the steps that it's going to take to really go through that process. Right. So we'll assist them with two big problems. And number one is quality control. Sure. And number two is actually the, uh, the intellectual property protection. Right. Interesting. Because the, the two biggest things that I see clients coming to me and saying, hey, Kyle, I'd love to got this great idea. I'd like to bring it to market, but I'm really worried about, you know, getting it mass produced in China because I think somebody's going to rip it off. Sure. And so Venturefy addresses that um, in a couple different ways, but the main or the most important method is um, number. I get a lot of clients who ask, you know, should we patent this? Should we, should we get a design patent on this technology? And uh, more, more often than not, that's not something I'd usually advise to clients. Okay. So when the, how we tend to protect the products is if you're making an electronic product, you have, you know, the, the hardware chips, you got the firmware, and then you got all the electron or the plastic parts and the other components. We'll split those up between multiple factories in China. And where the actual intellectual property value comes in is combining the you know hardware platform with the actual firmware and software that goes into it. Sure. Um, so we keep all the puzzle pieces spread out between multiple multiple suppliers, and then we'll actually assemble it all in house. Um, and that's one of the biggest deterrents for uh, protecting your intellectual property. Sure. Because patent, like actually getting a patent in different countries is really expensive, correct? Yeah, and so in uh, Canada, America, you'll spend about fifteen thousand um, dollars from from start to finish filing a patent, um, okay. and then on top of that, the actual, and that's for each country you want to file it in. But then on top of that, it's it's not a it's not a right that you have that nobody can go ahead and steal your idea after you have a patent. Sure. You have to go out there, identify those people, and then take legal action to make them stop selling their products. Right. So you generally have to have, you know, pretty large capital re- capital requirements or capital backing to really protect a a, a yeah, or to really protect a product or an innovation that you have. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, if you can develop some traction on the trade secrets, more often than not, you know, the big guy's not going to try to. Re- reverse engineer your product what they'll do is they'll come to you and you know look for a licensing or a acquisition deal right okay interesting so walk me through a little bit more of the process so you said kind of from idea to putting it on my doorstep but how far along do i need to be with my idea before you guys can really help me out? Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we can help people out. We have a few clients that we're working with and we're starting with them and they've already designed their product. They just need somebody to deal with the quality control and mass okay. production in China. So, okay. you know, we, we can, you know, start working on a project anywhere along the chain of events. But, okay. you know, the, the ideal or the best customers are, um, really two different ones is number one, we have a customer who, you know, has well-defined what product they're bringing to market. You know, okay. they understand who the customers are using it. And at that point we would bring them on at the, you know, industrial design phase where we'd start looking at designing the product around building something that can be scaled and something that can be sold for the unit price available. Okay. But then the actual, the other client that we get that's, you know, I would say even a little bit more popular is, uh, somebody who comes to us with a problem and they say, Hey Kyle, like we have uh, this problem with our supply chain. We're looking to put some sensors in it so that we can get some real time feedback on, uh, on our process. How would we go about this? Okay. Um, And so with that, we do, we offer a service, what we call innovation consulting. Okay. And the big part of what we do is we bring the knowledge of what's possible out there. um, And we help them identify what's a solution that could be applied to their business. And the big steps are, you know, they're considering whether the, whether or not they're going to go ahead with this project. Most um, electronic products, I mean, depending on the complexity, will range between about $100,000 and a million million dollars to bring to market. Sure. So it's, it's a pretty significant investment. Yep. So we'll work with them to develop a um, product specification document, okay. um, which basically outlines all the features in it, a market research uh, or market requirement document, 
which basically looks at, you know, what are the competitors out there? And this is actually where the quality control starts. Um, and then the last part is we'll build them a product roadmap. So what that would tell you is, you know, what are all those hidden costs of bringing this through the supply and through that scaling process, such as the cost of an injection mold, the cost of certifications. And if you're going to sell a product in, uh, in America and it's an electronic product, you have to get your CE certification. You have to get your FCC certification. FCC right. is your, uh, if you have any wireless, so if you have Bluetooth or Wi-Fi on your product. Okay. Um, and all these certifications, you know, they add up in costs. So sure. we generally, you know, a good ballpark number would say, you know, put aside about $10,000 per certification you're looking at getting. Wow. Um, but a lot of what we can help at this point is, you know, we'll help you understand what are all those hidden costs of bringing a product through that scaling process, what are the costs of shipping it, um, so that at the end of the day, you've allocated enough capital that you can bring this product to market successfully. Sure. Yeah, because there's nothing worse than you get halfway through and run out of money, right? Or three quarters of the way through, or even 95% of the way through, right? Yeah. And and I mean, what I that's, that's the kind of frustrating part is because you know, hardware products as, you know, a startup entity, for example, have a really bad rap of, you know, being very expensive and always taking four times as much money and four times as long as you expect to bring to market. Yep. And a lot of that goes into just the complexity of the process that you have to do to bring that product from idea all the way into, you know, the consumer's hands. So a lot of that can be avoided with this, you know, planning phase, really understanding the costs. Um, I'm going to go out there and anybody listening who is looking at bringing an electronic product to market, a great resource is actually uh, a book and it's, uh, it's written by a guy named Phil Baker Okay. and it's titled uh, from concept to consumer, how to bring ideas um, to life. Okay. I think, I think that's what it's called. Um, but it's, you know, it it really, really helps outline all these different processes. Okay. And that's a resource that, you know, even we use in the company to help train new employees coming on board. Sure. Makes sense. So you keep mentioning a quality control, and I know that's super important, but why is that so important and how do you guys handle that? Yeah, I mean... It all comes down to the consumer, right? Sure. Um, you sell an electronic product out there, and um, their electronic products are usually, or tech products are usually fairly expensive um, products, but especially today with the online reviews and whatnot, it not only will hurt your reputation, but it can cost you a lot in RMAs, which is refer- return to manufacture, right. um, or even just uh, sending out or like fixing or doing maintenance on the units. Okay. Um, so, one of the things we really focus on in our product development experience is building products or building quality into the product. Okay. So not necessarily, um, you know, verifying that, you know, the quality was built properly. That's a secondary step. The first step is actually understanding, you know, what are these, where are these products going to be used? Are they used in negative 30 degree weather? Are they used sure. in, um, humid environments? Uh, do they need to be waterproof? Um, a lot of those questions, if you ask those at the start of your design process, you'll end up building a product that can be, you know, a lot more robust, will build your um, brand reputation around, you know, quality products that don't fail. Um, and that's where you'll make a product that'll continue to be successful in the market and continue to sell for a number of years, rather than, you know, being that big flashy product that gets out there. And then, you know, there's a few people that have big problems with it. Um, and, you know, you read a few reviews and you decide to go with the competitor. Yeah, interesting. No, that makes sense. So you guys physically will have somebody in Taiwan that is actually going and checking the manufacturing process, right? Yeah, so we do um, two big things. Is The first is when we're actually setting up those agreements or those supply um, contracts or manufacturing contracts, we'll get the factories involved early on. So, you know, two to three months in the design process. And what that does is not only for the actual expertise of the factory, but it, it, it makes them invest a little bit of their own uh, time and energy into 
getting that contract with you and you start building a relationship of trust. Okay. Um, and that's a big component, especially when you're working with Chinese or Asian man- or Chinese manufacturers is, you know, a lot of business is built around trust and relationships there. So the longer you can, you know, have a relationship running with somebody, the better quality you can expect out of a product. Okay. Um, but then the second thing that we do is, yeah, we'll send people on or to the ground floor of the factory um, where your products are being produced and we'll assure the quality of the products coming out. And a lot of it isn't that we are really um, changing a lot about the, the manufacturing process, okay. but it's demonstrating that, that local presence. So sure. having somebody there to you know, keep them accountable. Um, so you, when, when you're just building a product and you're producing 100,000 units, you know, when you're in an eight hour shift, I'm sure it can, in the middle of it, it's, you know, it's hard to keep focused on, you know, really watching for those quality control issues, sure. especially if your client's a number on a paper. Yeah. Interesting. They're a foreign company in America. Um, so a lot of what our value is, is developing that relationship with those suppliers and then having that ongoing continuous presence. So rather than catching those quality control mistakes, once it's been, you know, assembled, shipped all the way over to America, we can catch them on the ground floor at the factory before they even ship over to America um, and saving money. But often money's not even the biggest problem. It's, it's getting those, qual- those products on, with an on-time delivery. Yeah, interesting. Because you hear it all the time. Hardware projects get delayed months or or years, right? Like that. I think that's almost what's been happening with a lot of hardware products that launch on Kickstarter is they just never yeah, ship or they ship so late, right? Yeah, and that's a great example. Kickstarter is a great example for that. Um, the if you look at Kickstarter, the actual projects that have been successful and gone on to make uh, multiple new products, um, it's all the products that got their or the uh, companies that got their products out to the consumer within a couple months yeah. of the Kickstarter closing. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of value, a lot of importance in, in that. Um, and that's something that, you know, often people don't think about till after they get their sales is, you know, they get all these sales and then they, then they go, Oh, well now we should set up manufacturing and now we should, you know, start working with our suppliers in China. Um, as an afterthought, you know, it can only go so far. Sure. Interesting. So it sounds like pretty early on then, right? Like, which makes sense. I I totally get why you would involve them as early as possible. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, there's two big reasons you, you, uh, involve, involve them early on. And it's number one is for the quality control and that building that relationship. But the second is when we actually go through and are starting to build that budget. Um, so understanding, you know, if you have this feature, you're adding into it, and it's going to cost, you know, an extra hundred thousand dollars to build and implement. Is it actually worth it? If it's going to cost, you know, an extra 40 cents to add to the product's unit cost. Um, like what are you selling, selling with compared to competitors? So really balancing what's the actual benefit that a consumer gets out of it versus the additional cost on mass producing it, the actual unit cost. And number two, the additional cost of all the engineering and time that goes into building it. Sure. And then I guess you could reach out to the factory too and get them involved and say, hey, we're thinking of adding this in. Maybe we add it in version one or version two, depending on cost, right? Or maybe not at all. Yeah. And I mean, that's, so there's, there's this big, a lot of people I talk to have this um, perception of manufacturers. They always ask me, hey, Kyle, um, you guys sound connected. Like, do you guys, do you guys have, you know, three or four manufacturers that you work with in, in China and they do all your products? Okay. Um, that's, that's not exactly how it works. You know, um, each factory has its own specialty. They produce, you know, one type of product and they're really good at producing that type of product. Okay. Like what what would be a type of product? Sorry. Um, for example, uh, you could see the, uh, smartwatch. Let's take a, uh, kind of a Fitbit type, uh, product. For example, somebody who's designing and building a smartwatch, needs to know how to build an electronic product that uh, is going to be waterproof. Okay, Um, For example, that factory is going to have learned a lot of lessons about, you know, how to make waterproof, how to to manufacture and assemble products that are waterproof. So working with somebody who's done that before is going to save you a lot of costs compared to working with a factory that's, you know, never done that and has to, has to go through that learning experience. Sure. And, 
the other thing that a lot of people don't really pull off of is the actual experience of the manufacturers. Um, you know, they've been designing products, you know, fairly similar to what you're looking for. If you're looking for a battery pack, you know, they've probably designed a hundred battery packs in the past. And that's where you can get some really early feedback in if there's any problems that are going to come up with how the product's being assembled or how the product is, you know, being manufactured. So that's a big value of working with those manufacturers from the start is, you know, they make the stuff. They can sure. look at it and tell you, yeah, it's going to work or no, it's not going to work in terms of how it's actually built and put together. Yeah, no, and that's invaluable, right? Because you, you could, sp- if that cuts out one or two or more versions of a prototype, then you you can save a ton of time and money, right? Oh, yeah, you can save months. And some products are, you know, it's, it's, re- it's fairly important. Um, to get it to market in a reasonable in a reasonable time, you only have a certain window sure. on uh, a lot of the products that we're looking at bringing because you got you know competitors who are maybe uh, developing similar products, or you have you know the technology landscapes kind of moving forward, and you got Bluetooth 5.0 coming out next year. Yeah, interesting. And then even knowing when to upgrade your current project or product, sorry, to the next version of something like going from, you know, the current version of Bluetooth to the new version of Bluetooth, right? Could add a huge amount of cost that you may or may not need. Yeah. Could add a huge amount of cost or could, you know, also add a lot of value. Yeah. Um, One of the biggest steps that I've seen in the last couple of years is going from, you know, uh, Bluetooth protocols to the Bluetooth uh, low energy. Yeah. Sure. Um, a lot of product products that are available today take those uh, tile trackers for your for your keys. Okay. Sure. Um, you put these trackers on your keys and your wallet, um, and then you can use your phone to locate them if you ever lose them. Sure. Um, those use Bluetooth Low Energy. That's something that you know wouldn't have been possible using the old Bluetooth protocols because it's it's a much lower energy requirement. So your battery life lasts you know, a year on those products versus, you know, maybe it would have lasted a couple of weeks, a couple of months sure. and having somebody who understands, you know, what are those opportunities out there and how they can really fit into your product can add a lot of value. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So what advice would you give people that are doing their own hardware startup? Because it it's really, really daunting. Yeah. Um, so the, the big thing is, number one, really do your research. And I'm talking about doing your research on what are all the costs and the timelines associated. when. So when you're looking to raise money, you can raise you know enough money to actually make that product successful. Um, number two, don't, don't reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of great um, components or you know, um, chipsets that you can integrate into your product without having to redesign um, for example, the networking or the, you know, uh, IOT sensors. There's a lot of great products out there that you can integrate in your design without having to, you know, redesign them from scratch. Okay. And then the last thing is, um, you know, apply the lean startup method. Okay. Um, really, really look at, you know, what the customers want and put it, uh, you know, develop a minimal viable product prototype or minimal viable product Um, and get some, get some feedback on what are those actual valuable features and valuable parts that are in the device? Um, because it's going to, it's going to save you a lot more money to change your design early on in the prototyping phase rather than, you know, once you've gone a little bit deeper into the detailed design. Sure. So typically how many prototypes do you usually see? Like, it seems like there's at least five or six versions in in most cases that you go through, sometimes less, sometimes more. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd break the prototypes into a few different, a few different phases. Okay. So the first, the first phase is what we tend to refer to as like an aesthetic prototype. So that is how the product looks, how the product feels and how the, how the consumers interact with it. Okay. So, um, if you're making, I don't know, for example, a heated coffee mug. Okay. Um, you know, what size, what shape do you make that coffee mug? And, you know, what are the ideal temperatures that you got to have that uh, keeping the liquid at? Um, those are the kind of questions you ask during that aesthetic prototype stage. Okay. Um, and then once, so you usually go through a few iterations of those. 
and those are often using, you know, 3D printing and other rapid prototype methods. Right. Um, and then you'd really jump into um, the electronic prototypes. Okay. So during this phase, you got the first one is usually done using a prototype board. So that would be something like a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino. Okay. Um, and basically, this is just a proof of concept. The tech exists out there. This is how it can be done. And, you know, you can start testing some of those, some of those questions you had on the technical feasibility. Okay. Um, and then, then the next step would be actually integrating that prototype um, electronic or electronic prototype board and building a printed circuit board. Okay. So making your own um, custom electronic board that's going to fit within the shape and size of your product. Um, and that's what we usually refer to as, you know, electronic PCB um, prototype board. Okay. And then, uh, and then the, the last step you're going to do there is you're going to do all the, you know, mechanical and assembly prototyping. So that's where you're kind of going through and looking at how does this product all fit together? You know, how does the circuit board mount to the mechanical or like the plastic enclosure? Um, how does it interface with an app if you're building an app with it? Um, and so these are the points where you got a product that looks, it feels, it works just like it would once it's mass produced, but you haven't even really delved deep onto figuring out, you know, um, how this thing is going to be, you know, mass produced and really optimizing for some of those mass production processes. Okay. So then the last, the last prototype, which I don't know if you quite can consider still classifying it as a prototype is when you're doing your first pilot runs with the factories. Okay. So you produce, you know, 10 to 15 units and you make sure that, you know, they all fit together properly. And a lot of what those are used for is reducing cost of assembling an electronic component. Cause the more complex of a, of a product you have, the more time and, and money it's going to cost to actually put it together. Sure. And then who do you usually get to put it all together? Would that be you guys or do you outsource that or how does that work? So on a, on, on a product that, uh, you know, it's fairly non-unique um, and, you know, you see a lot of other similar competitors out there. We'll usually just work with the factory that's producing some of the main components um, okay. to assemble it. Okay. Um, but anything that is, you know, a really unique uh, custom product that, you know, you're worried about protecting your intellectual property, um, you can afford to pay a little bit higher price. That's when we're going to do it uh, in-house and we'll ship all the parts um, from Taiwan and then assemble or from China and assemble it in Taiwan. And that's for a couple of reasons. Um, Number one is we can check the quality of all the internal components in the product as well as the whole thing. Right. Um, number two is that intellectual property protection. And number three, it's getting uh, more and more difficult to um, import China-made products into America due to, you know, some of the new tariffs and uh, import right. regulations that are, that are coming up with uh, the new administration. It's always an ever-changing landscape. So, you know, depending on the product, that's when you'll kind of look at whether you're going to do it here or there. Um, and I've even seen a few products being manufactured in America or in Canada. Okay. Um, and that's because military products actually have to be made in the country. Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah. So you actually, you have to assemble or mass manufacture most military products for military contracts uh, on, on like their local territory. So if you're working with uh, the American military, it has to be produced in the U S um, and that's where I see a lot of that. Everybody's always asking is, uh, what do you think about decentralized manufacturing? You know, uh, a lot of small local manufacturing sources and, you know, how the, uh, outsourced manufacturing is kind of going away right now. Yeah. China's the best place for electronic products because they got the component supply chain. They got a lot of the resources there. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely some other industries out there that require manufacturing in a more local setting. Um, and that may be because the, uh, the parts are, you know, very heavy and big and it costs more to ship them over than it would be to, you know, produce them locally. Yeah. Interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing that's interesting, um, is we, we were talking about it yesterday is people are still so against, well, not a lot of, some people, I guess, are, are very much against offshoring, content or design or development or manufacturing but it's so much cheaper in a lot of cases right is that fair to say yeah 100 um so like the general rule of thumb 
that you'll see in resources textbooks and what I kind of refer to people is if you're producing, you know, a technologically complicated item um, in China, you want to have an order value of about a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. And the reason for that is what it does is it's a lot of the factories you work with will have a minimum order quantity. Okay. So you have to order products in minimum a thousand units or a minimum 10,000 units. Okay. Um, and so to, to actually do that, it's going to, you're going to have to spend a bit more money. But then the second thing is your priority level at the factory. Yeah, so, I mean, you can, you can convince factories to produce you a couple hundred units, but um, when push comes to shove, you're not going to, you're not going to be their number one priority. They're going to prioritize the, you know, the big clients that have, you know, the larger, sure. larger dollar value orders. Um, so I usually suggest, yeah, you kind of want to keep it for like the long term. You want to order around um, minimum about a hundred thousand dollars in a year dealing with the factories, just so that that keeps you relevant in their books and it, and it, and it uh, makes the most fiscal sense to actually manufacture the product there. The, I guess the stigma that's still existing around offshore manufacturing or, or outsourcing pretty much anything, it kind of comes down to that 90, 10 rule. You got, you know, 10% of the service offers out there that actually, yeah, they maybe they don't, or they usually don't uh, give you that good of quality work. And it's, you know, those few horror stories that get passed around that really, you know, build up that image and push a lot of people away from, you know, trying to dive into the manufacturing um, outsourced in, you know, China or India is actually a huge uh, growing a lot in their manufacturing of like uh, plastic products. Sure. Um, but uh, really when it comes down to it is, you know, yeah, there's always a risk you take when you're working with a foreign entity that you don't know and maybe you don't have huge visibility in terms of, you know, where they're located and you can't visit their office. Um, and then the second thing is having that local presence. And that's a lot where, you know, companies like mine can kind of fit into that puzzle and help you, you know, still take advantage of those out or outsourced manufacturing opportunities um, while giving you somebody to help you, you know, limit that that little, that risk that's on the table there. So, I mean, yeah, I, I have heard, you know, some people that have, you know, really struggled with manufacturing in China, but the reality of it is, is most more often than not, even if you're having some quality control issues, you can still buy twice as many products from China for the same price as the ones you're going to buy here. So um, like worst case scenario, you, you know, you discard the 30% and have them sent back to the factory to get redone. Um, and you're still, you know, saving money or spending a similar amount of money. So it's, you know, it's an opportunity on the table that, you know, a lot of people are shying away, away from, but I don't think it's going away, you know, anytime really in the, in the, in the very close future. And it's just a lot of it has to do with China has the supply chain for it. They produce all the electronic chips um, and they just have the big supply chain for mass production. Sure. So how important is understanding the language or can you get by in a lot of cases just speaking English to the to somebody at the manufacturing plants? Yeah, um so I always put it this way is like first time I went over there my my Chinese was definitely not passable. Okay. Um so it it can be done. What I found is um if you're going to be dealing with the factories directly without a third party involved. Yeah. Um I would strongly suggest that you you bring on a translating company okay. or you speak the language. But um, a lot of what can be done is there's a lot of um, factories and sourcing individuals on the site uh, Alibaba. Okay. And Alibaba is basically uh, basically like Amazon, but they deal with like wholesale products coming from China. And what they'll do is they everybody on there who's dealing with you, you know, speaks. Um, reasonably well in English, but on top of that, um, Alibaba pro- provides some protection in the, in the circumstances where, you know, you, your, your contract didn't end up holding up their end of the contractual agreement. Uh, so maybe they didn't deliver the, deliver the products. That's where, you know, a platform like that helps you actually, um, secure those risks and, okay. uh, get those products. And it's very important that if you're going that route, 
where you're not working with somebody to build a relationship and, you know, um, setting up all those contracts yourself to keep all communication on that platform. Ah, makes sense. That's good. Because anything they'll try to, a lot of the really, you know, experienced, uh, manufacturers, or there's a lot of reselling companies who work with the factories on your behalf on there. Um, a lot of the really experienced ones will put the stuff that, you know, they don't necessarily want in the contract. They'll try to discuss that over email, um, Uh, or over the phone. It's important to have that in writing and on the platform you're working with. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's actually really good advice. So uh, we're kind of coming to the end of the show, but is there any other advice that you would give people looking to do a hardware startup or add hardware to their current business? Um, yeah, it's, uh, hardware's, you know, it's complicated. It can take quite a bit of an investment. Um, but the biggest step would be, you know, before jumping in and starting to, you know, work on developing a prototype for your project, really look at the market, understand where the gap is, where you have to design your product, um, and do a really detailed, detailed analysis and understanding of what are all the costs and investments that it's going to take to bring this hardware product from that idea into the consumer. Cause that's, I mean, that's the, the number one place that I see startups failing is, you know, they come to us and they haven't really spent enough time or enough money or uh, energy evaluating, you know, who's this product for, how is it going to be used and to actually sell it in our markets? What do we have to make it for? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too, is you mentioned something earlier that got me thinking is like a Raspberry Pi or something similar to that. You can build a pretty good, really, really rough prototype with some pretty expensive hardware that already exists. Right. And maybe you write a little bit of software to it and it's probably nowhere near what you want it to be, but it would probably be enough to start getting some early feedback or, or testing it on your own. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, hundred percent. And, and we're talking a few hundred dollars, right. To get there. It'll cost you a few hundred dollars, but it gives you the same ability to test whether if you're testing, whether your Bluetooth network will have enough range or, um, you know, a lot of the technology in it is the same stuff. It's just packaged in a way where, you know, it's easy to prototype and that's what it's built for. So yeah, take advantage of that start getting some early customer feedback because anything you do in that prototype stage where you're not investing big dollars into, you know, electronic PCB design and whatnot um, is going to save you a whole ton of money down the line and really allow you to validate your project. Um, So I I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. Um, And then like the, the second like big point or, or, tip that I could give with using a lot of these uh, Arduinos or um, Raspberry Pis to build uh, build your design is everybody always asks, you know, how much is it going to cost to make my project? Well, it could, it could, you could develop something for 10 years and you can always make it better. Sure. You can always make it more perfect. It's set a minimum viable product. So the minimum design that you need and then test it and then add to it. You can always, you can always, you know, continue to develop it, but you got to set an expectation of understanding where your product, where you want it to end up, because there's always ways to make it better. There's always ways to, you know, continue improving it. And at some point you just got to get it out there to the customer and get some real feedback. And then, you know, in version 2.0, that's when you can really add a lot more value. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I've even seen guys or girls use like Lego to hold things in place or cardboard or like it doesn't have to be, it can be pretty crude, right? To get that kind of first version um, up and working and and you playing with it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, you don't have to spend a whole lot of money and by no means do you have to, you know, go out there and get the best and and the craziest, most expensive stuff. The, the easiest way to start is to get started doing something. And I, I actually love cardboard prototypes. Okay. I think they're, you know, one of the one of the best steps you can take moving forward. But, yeah, just start applying the lean startup method and, you know, develop a product and get out, get out there, get some feedback, get some user user feedback. And then, you know, 
modify your design, improve your design. And once you have really validated the market, once you validated, you know, that your product, something that people are going to actually use, then is when you're going to start wanting to take some of those steps to look at, okay, well, how do I build something that's going to be able to be scaled and mass produced and, you know, sell to consumers? Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. But Kyle, we're we're coming to the end, so let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other links you want to mention. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can go ahead and uh, visit our website if you want more information. It's uh, www.ventrify.ca, and that's uh, V-E-N-T-R-I-F-Y.ca. Um, you can also go ahead and uh, send me an email at... Uh, kyle.hanfield at ventrify.ca um and uh i think that would be two of the biggest uh places to get a lot of information about designing and developing your product and then the last thing is yeah i can't uh i can't recommend it uh enough i think it's one of the most valuable books i've read uh and it's uh that phil baker book um concept consumer how to turn ideas into money um i think those are couple of the biggest resources and then other than that is just read a lot of blogs do a lot of uh a lot of information and uh just start connecting to those people who um you know have developed products and hardware products in the past and start asking them some questions on linkedin or give them a call perfect kyle well i really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and i look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day man yeah for sure um thanks a lot thanks, and we'll man. uh we'll talk again soon sounds good Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.